Well, hello there, listeners. Welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 369 of Sustainable Minimalists, a show about intentional and eco-friendly minimalist living. Have you ever wondered, I'm sure you have, but have you ever wondered about the effects of screen time on your children? Perhaps you worry about their development. Perhaps you worry about what screens do to their attention spans. And if you are worried about development and attention spans, you are rightly worried, so pat yourself on the back. But my guest today argues that the consequences of this monumental shift that is happening right before our eyes towards a digitized and ultra-commercialized childhood go much deeper. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Susan Lin. She is the author of the new book, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. Dr. Lin is on the show today for two reasons. Number one, she's here to outline the problem, give real-world examples of what big tech is doing exactly to our children and their childhoods. And in part two of today's conversation, Dr. Lynn is offering her best thoughts on how we at the home level, so within our home, how we can course correct. Dr. Lynn, I am so unbelievably, I'm such a fan. I am so unbelievably excited to have you on this podcast. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Stephanie, and I'm so happy to be talking with you. Before we talk about the commercialization of kids, what a big topic, by the way, I'd love it if you tell us who you are and how you got into researching the ways in which big tech influences our children's lives. I began life as a ventriloquist and earned my living doing performances for kids, making video programs about difficult issues for kids. But Child development and human psychology was always really important to me. And in the 1990s, I was performing, I was working with kids, I was raising a child at home, and I could see that commercialism was encroaching on children's lives in ways that I'd never seen before. So that was the beginning for me. And that's when PBS launched Teletubbies, imported it from Britain, and claimed that it was educational for babies when they had no research showing that it was. And that was the last straw for me. That's when I formed what is now called Fair Play, which was called Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood. And that was the beginning. The idea that even public television was exploiting babies for profit just seemed just so wrong to me. You said something there that I really want to latch onto. You said that even public programming was exploiting babies for profit. And I'm willing to bet that some of my moms and dads listening right now are thinking to themselves, what the heck is Dr. Lynn talking about? So can you break that down a little bit for parents who have never thought about how television, tech, big business, how these entities are exploiting and manipulating our children for profit? Corporations that deal in consumer goods, which includes media, they need to keep growing their audience. And one 
really powerful way to grow it is to target children and even very young children. What the research shows is that lifetime brand loyalty is extremely lucrative for companies, but also it's a real thing. What we do in childhood, the brands we like, the games we play, those have special meaning to us. And so now we have all these, you know, corporations trying to latch on to babies and to get babies' attention from practically the moment they're born. There's some terrible children's programming and there's some really great children's programming. But one thing that these have in common is that many of the apps and programs support themselves through advertising and through marketing to kids. And so there's very little that you can find for children today in children's tech and media that isn't selling them something. And so the purpose of the program becomes to sell kids on the brand, to imprint the brand into children's minds, and to make them learn to love the brand. The new technologies are even more powerful tools for marketing. And so it's become even more intense. I mean, one product on the market today is a headband that parents are encouraged to use when they change babies' diapers. It's a headband with a place for a smartphone. And as the parent's bending over the baby, the baby can latch onto the screen. I mean, that's just a clear example of tech companies, for instance, wanting to addict babies from infancy. And it's so unnecessary. One piece of insight I gained from your latest book that I had honestly never thought of before was the fact that our children are being essentially trained from infancy to become little consumers because they're always upsold something. So the thing isn't enough. There's the in-app purchases. There's the extra add-on. And so I'm wondering if you can talk to me about all of that and also what the implications are for our children as they grow if they think that what they're getting is never enough. Can you speak more on that? There's a lot of research on materialistic values and that the belief that the things you buy will make you happy or that make you successful or that's how you define success or that's how you pick your friends is by things that those values are actually harmful to kids. I mean, kids with more materialistic values have more psychosomatic illness. They're less happy. There's more tension between parents and children. It's important to remember that advertising doesn't just sell products. It sells values and behaviors. And the primary value of all commercial advertising, the underlying value is that the things you buy will make you happy. And we are flooding children with that message. And we do that in lots of ways. One way are just what we now think of as so old world commercials. But another way is in the very design of the games that kids play themselves. Like the very design of the games that children play. 
the game is designed to encourage buying or buying behavior. In my book, in Who's Raising the Kids, I talk about playing a Lego game with the five-year-old. We were on an iPad, we were playing this game, and I was totally stunned when we finished racing. And instead of saying, I won, or let's do it again, he said, now we can go shopping. And so we went from this Lego game racing to a pretend market where we could buy things with the points that we'd earned from racing. So the fundamental goal of that app was not to have fun. It wasn't to promote creativity. It wasn't even to win. It was to go shopping. That's problematic on an individual level, which I already talked about. But here we are in the middle of a global climate crisis that is deeply rooted in overconsumption. And yet that's the message that we are giving kids. We are immersing kids in that world, that a world where buying things is the way to happiness, power, popularity. And it happens on so many levels, including starting with when young children fall in love with Elmo or a character on Coco Melon. And then there are all these products. And so the kids start learning that what you said earlier, Stephanie, that just having the experience of watching something and then going off to play about it, that isn't enough. You have to own something or some things or many things with that character's image. Yes. I'm thinking about when my first daughter, this is probably maybe six years ago now, she fell in love with Elsa from Frozen. She watched that movie over and over again over the course of maybe two years. And, you know, because she had an interest in this character, all the birthday presents and the holiday gifts and the experience gifts were all Elsa focused. And This is probably quite common in families with young children, right? The child likes Dora the Explorer or Elmo or whoever it is. Then the child becomes inundated with all the stuff, the foods that, you know, like the snack crackers with Elsa's face on them, the Disney on ice tickets that we need to go to because, again, watching the movie just is no longer enough. And so I wonder what the implications are, because what we're really doing here, and it's subtle. It's just below consciousness for most of us, not you, obviously, but for the rest of us, we know it's happening, but we don't fully understand the depth. And I find myself wondering, what are the implications associated with raising children to become adults who always think they need more? And so there's no question there. It's just something, some thoughts that are swirling around in my mind. But you do argue in your book another troubling phenomenon, which I really would love your insight on. You say that these tech industries, their ultimate goal, or maybe perhaps one of their ultimate goals, is to get our children to bond with their devices because these devices, in many ways, are inserting themselves in a parental role. Talk to me more about that. One thing that I think that is important to remember is that the devices are changing. 
we're moving beyond swiping and tapping and all of that to an age of virtual reality, but also of sociable robots. This isn't science fiction. It's actually even happening today. And what the tech companies really, truly want is for all of us, including our children, to fall in love with their products, to form a lifelong, powerful, daily, hourly attachment to these products. And they compete ruthlessly for our attention without regard to the cost benefit to the people who are being targeted, especially children. And we know a lot from research about what children really need to thrive. We know they need hands-on experiences of exploring the world. They need time in nature. They need, most importantly, face-to-face, actual, in real lifetime with the adults who love them. They need to be read to. But the tech companies and the toys and the apps and the devices that we are being told will benefit our children actually deprive children of all of those things. If a parent is wearing a headband with an iPhone on it so that the baby will stare at the moving image on the screen instead of at the parent's face, that is interfering with the kind of bonding and attachment that is essential to healthy human development. That's just one example. Another example are these personal devices, personal assistants like Alexa, which claim that they can assume parental roles, help children figure out things to do, help kids with homework, answer their questions. Those are normally the functions of people whose primary interest is the well-being of the children, or at least it's supposed to be. But the primary interest of Amazon, which owns Alexa or Google or all those other companies, it's to generate profit. It's not the well-being of children. And I want to go back to something that I did just say about how helping kids figure out what to do. It's not that adults who love children need to be telling kids what to do or providing them with activities. In fact, it's important that kids spend time figuring things out on themselves, spend time being bored and then coming up with their own ideas. That's part of the experience of being creative in the world. I bought a kid's Alexa, the Echo Dot for kids, Amazon's smart speaker, and it has an I'm bored feature. And so the first thing I signed on as a little kid, reinforcing my understanding that it's so easy to lie about your age when you're online. So I said, Alexa, I'm bored. And Alexa came up with five activities for me to do, all of which were de facto ads for children's products. Star Wars, Disney. There wasn't a frozen one. 
but American girl, SpongeBob SquarePants. It wasn't anything like kids being bored and then looking around in the world for something that they themselves latch onto voluntarily. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, listeners, we're going to transition to some action steps. If we're concerned about the influence of big tech on our children, what can we as parents do? We're going to get there after a quick sponsor break. Nothing nurtures the world above better than the soil below, and that's why I am so excited to introduce you to Coast of Maine. Coast of Maine is an organic soil brand that offers a full range of products designed to cover all of your garden and lawn needs. In years past, my vegetable garden, I neglected the soil and I didn't have much yield. If your soil lacks appropriate nutrients for success, your garden may not succeed. And so this year, I am so excited to cultivate the soil before planting the plants with Coast of Maine's organic products. Coast of Maine believes in nurturing relationships with local retailers. So next time you're at your local retailer, look for Coast of Maine products. Get growing. Visit coastofmaine.com to find a local retailer near you, coastofmaine.com. And we're back. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Susan Lin. She is the author of Who's Raising the Kids, Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. Dr. Lynn, I'd love to spend the second part of our conversation discussing your thoughts on how parents listening can um, reduce the impact, the influence of big tech on our children's development. And on the one hand, I want to say maybe the solution is as simple as restricting tech. <laughs> but as my children get older, I have a nine-year-old, she's my oldest, it gets harder and harder to do so. We are a digitized society. Everywhere we go, there is a screen, literally everywhere. We went to the pediatrician's office the other day and there were screens showing cartoons in the waiting room, like literally everywhere. So what thoughts do you have for parents like me who are justifiably concerned? Okay, let me say a couple of things. One thing is, I think you should complain to your pediatrician's office about the screens. That's one thing that parents can do on an individual level is speak up when something is really troubling them. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has advocates all these restrictions on screen time. So the fact that your pediatrician's office is doing that is really concerning. So the problem with the technology today is our children's preoccupation with screens and technology and our own preoccupation with screens and technology. And we need to do something about both of those. Now, before I go any further than that, though, I do want to say, and I'm very clear about this in my book, I'm not here to make people feel guilty, to make parents feel guilty. I think that in many ways, it has never been harder to raise a child than it is today. I, I used to say we're not dealing with the bubonic plague, and that's true, but I was saying that before COVID. It's 
even aside from that, it's just hard when the culture itself, the commercialized culture itself, is both compelling and toxic for kids. So my heart goes out to parents today. And that's why I think it's really important to headline every conversation about what to do is that this is a societal problem, not just a parental problem. And we need regulations and laws that protect kids. And I won't go into the details of those here, but given that it's a societal problem, I also know that social change takes time and parents need help now. So one thing is to ensure that your child, you and your family spend quality time away from screens, uncommercialized, undigitized time. What do you like to do together that isn't dependent on a screen? Do you like to sing? Do you make music? Do you go on hikes? Do you walk? Do you play board games? Do you play cards? Do you cook together? Whatever it is, do you spend time outside both, you know, together? So whatever it is, do more of that. For prospective parents and parents of babies and toddlers, it's important to know that there is a growing body of research strongly suggesting that excessive time with screens actually changes the baby's brain structure. And what they're finding is that that babies and toddlers who spend more time with screens have more trouble with the jargon is executive function, which is the capacity to initiate a task and follow it through to the end. And also self-regulation or the capacity for self-control, which is something that children develop over time. So it's really, truly best to keep babies and toddlers away from screens. I'm not talking about FaceTiming or video chatting with adults who love them. That's a different story. But I'm talking about apps and games and videos are designed specifically for kids. And what... When I say that, parents sometimes panic. Oh, my God, how can I get things done around the house? But the hole that you're falling into is that once you introduce screens, first of all, it's very hard to just hand a baby a cell phone once and then never do it again. That's important. Five minutes, 10 minutes even with a video screen is not going to destroy a baby's life. But it almost is never five minutes or 10 minutes once you start. What goes on the screen is compelling for babies, but that doesn't mean that it's good for them. And another thing is we all need to turn off the alerts on our phones. Those are the little bings and pings that tell you that somebody has done something on Instagram or you have a message or you have a new a new email or something like that. Most of the time, most people really don't need those alerts. And the problem with the alerts is, first of all, that it disrupts everything that you're doing, including what you're doing with your kids. 
Secondly, it models for children the power of the screens to pull us in. The third thing is that once you do one thing on your phone, it is really hard not to do something else. And so one easy thing that people could do is wear a dumb watch. When I got my smartphone, I stopped wearing a watch. I thought, I don't need to wear a watch. And then I noticed every time I looked at my watch to check the time, I checked my email. I looked for messages, something like that. The phones are designed to suck you in and to keep you wanting to do more and more. It's a brilliant design to have everything on one machine. That's brilliant. Our phones, health information, messages, you know, what the time, watches, whatever. But that's what builds your addiction. So one really simple thing, don't get a smartwatch. Or if you have one, don't wear it when you're with your kids. Wear a dumb watch. Yeah, I love that. I started a little list as you were talking of helpful tips and tricks. Like number one, the parents who are listening, we need to get real honest with ourselves about our own usage. What are we teaching our children if every time they try and talk to us, we're on our own devices? It's hard. We live in a digitized society, but if we're trying to teach our children (laughs) something and reduce the influence of big tech on them, we first need to look at our usage and how big tech is influencing us. Delay giving tech. I know in your book, you say, wait to give your child that cell phone. A smartphone. Yes. Don't give unnecessary tech. Like perhaps the Alexa in your home is unnecessary. It's just extra. Perhaps the gizmo watch isn't really truly necessary. Like ask, does my child need this? Or is this just the new thing that all their friends have that they want? Um, I do have a question though about older children. Like for parents of babies and toddlers, you are in the golden age right now because you're in charge. You can take it away <laughs> and you're in charge. But when, as the kids get older, they fight back a little bit more. Do you have any words for the parents with those middle-aged and teenage kids who have grown accustomed to unfettered access to screens and now the parents retroactively want to pull back? Any thoughts for them? Yeah, if the kids have had unfettered access to screens and other teenagers, I'm not saying that reducing that, that's going to, that could be, is likely to be hard. But there are some things you can do. And one is to institute house rules for everybody, not just for the kids. Some families have a place where people put their phones when they walk in the house. People have rules about no screens at all during meals. Sit down for a family meal, have that meal together. Other families block off one evening or one afternoon or one day a week where the whole family is tech-free. So that's one thing or some things, you know, that parents of older kids can do. Talk to your kids about the problems of phones. There are a lot of or a growing number of young people speaking out against the hold that tech has on them and their peers. That's something your kids might want to look up some of those groups and get in touch with them. 
Another thing is that you can do when your kids are younger and might hold when your kids are older is to talk to other parents about it and try to find at least some families who have your values or at least whose values around tech overlap with yours. It's hard to do things alone. When your child wants something desperately because everybody else in the class or all his friends have it, that's hard. It's hard because, A, we are designed to want our kids to be happy. B, it brings up our own childhood memories of being left out, of not getting what we wanted, being made fun of. And so it's very hard to separate our experiences of childhood from our children's experiences of childhood. Take whatever stand you feel that you need to take for your child's well-being, but validate your child's feelings. I know it's hard for you, but families have different values, and these are ours. Again, try to find other families whose actions around screens and tech and commercialism at least overlap with yours. It's hard when you or your child are all alone. Yeah. And I would just say for the parents with older children, it's hard to be retroactive with regard to tech, but it is possible. And I know from experience, a couple months ago, Susan, I aired an interview on, um, it was essentially about screen switches and how Today's TV is different from the TV of yours and my childhoods. There are more screen switches. What does that do to developing brains? And so after I aired that interview, I was, excuse me, it wasn't an interview. After I aired that episode, I was concerned because my children were in the habit of asking for half an hour of TV, an hour of TV every night around dinner time, And that was like the babysitter. They watch TV and I cook dinner. and. My husband and I, quite quietly, we didn't announce it to the kids, but we decided we were going to have Monday through Friday, no TV for them in the house. Again, we didn't announce it because then that would have made a fight, but we just quietly said we would redirect them if they asked. I was expecting weeks upon weeks of battle, but they stopped asking probably after the third day that we redirected them. Now they hardly ever ask for TV, whether it's the week or the weekend. And so I say that to parents, not necessarily to like tap myself on the back, but just to say that even though it does sound daunting, restricting access to screens, it totally is possible. Just take little incremental steps in that direction. I think that's really good advice, Stephanie. Whatever you're, try doing less, at least start out that way. And for parents who did participated in screen-free week, this week without screens, they had the same experience that you did, Stephanie, where lots of them, the first day was very hard, the second day was hard, the third day was less hard, and then it just ended. Yeah. So you're right. It's hard to stand up to these zillion-dollar corporations who are doing everything they can to undermine child development and come between parents and children. Important to try. 
It is important to try. And for listeners who want some more information, your book, Who's Raising the Kids, is a great place to start that educating of yourselves. Tell my listeners, Dr. Lynn, where they can find Who's Raising the Kids. You can find it in your local bookstore. You could find it online. It's just for sale everywhere. Books are for sale. Perfect. Well, I will link to you and your book in this week's show notes. But Dr. Lynn, I want to thank you so much for giving me your time. You've given me as a mom, not necessarily as a podcast host, but as a mom, an awful lot to think about. So thank you so much for your work. Well, thank you. And it was great to talk to you. Listeners, show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 369. Dr. Lynn did offer a few resources and websites today. They are in the show notes for you to check out. And I'm so excited a couple of you over the past week sent EcoTip. So I have one for you today. Today's EcoTip comes from Andrea. Andrea said that a couple years ago, she was given a fancy water bottle. So really good quality, meant to last the test of time, but it was chipped and it had stickers on it. The stickers were peeling off. And so she didn't know what to do. Should she just buy a new one? Should she keep this one? Again, there was nothing technically wrong with it, but it was definitely looking a little sad. So what did she do? She harnessed the power of the internet. She went to YouTube where she learned that she can use acetone to strip off the stickers and the old paint from her water bottle, from anything, but especially from this water bottle. And it worked really well. These days, her water bottle is a nice, shiny steel color. And now it has fresh stickers too. So Andrea, I'm so proud of you. You gave your old water bottle new life and you didn't send it to the landfill. So amazing job. Listeners, acetone will strip off that sticker goo. Go ahead and try it. I'll see you all on Thursday. I don't know what we're talking about yet. I'm behind. I apologize, but it's going to be good. I'll see you then and take care. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.